welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Vance Abner. His father was an austere but devout Christian, the pastor's right-hand man at Old Corinth Baptist Church. The country preachers always stayed at our house on Saturday before the fourth Sunday in each month when they came by horse and buggy to preach the monthly sermon. Some of those sermons were long enough to last a month and sounded more like filibusters, but it was sound preaching. Father always let me sit up late on those Saturday nights before the open fire and listen to him and the minister talk about things of God. It beat all the television that has been seen since. Verses 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, old things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself for Jesus, by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We've reached a sad day in America when everybody seems to be mad at everybody, calling each other names for the past months, unable to agree on anything. At the same time, we've never had so many conferences. Symposiums, where, as I said last night, we pool our ignorance. And so many committee meetings. If committee meetings would do it, we'd had everything straightened out a long time ago. You know what a committee is? A group of the unfit appointed by the unwilling to do the unnecessary. <laughs> the other day, they got worried about too many overlapping committees in Washington. Guess what they did? They appointed a committee to study the overlapping committees. The more we get together, the farther we get apart. Will Rogers used to say, one sure way to prevent wars is to abolish peace conferences. Well, that's a pretty sensible suggestion. To listen to some people talk, you'd think all we need is understanding. Uh, just get everybody to understand each other account for everything and we'll be all right. Even the books about children today, they explain all of Junior's misdeeds by psychological terms, you know, big long words, explaining why Junior does this and why Junior didn't do that. Junior bit the meter man, Junior kicked the cook. Junior's antisocial now, according to the book. 
Junior smashed the clock and lamp. Junior hacked the tree. Destructive trends are treated in chapters 2 and 3. Junior threw his milk at mom. Junior screamed for more. Notes on self-assertiveness are found in chapter 4. Junior tossed his shoes and socks out into the rain. Negation that, a normal disregard disdain. Junior got in Grandpop's room and tore up his fishing line. That's to gain attention, see page 89. But Grandpop seized a slipper and yanked Junior across his knee, for Grandpop hadn't read a book since 1893. <laughs> well, maybe it's a good thing not to read a book every once in a while. You know, the title of that poem is on being behind with one's reading. <laughs> I believe it'd be a good thing maybe sometime. Oh, I get so tired of this today. They say the burglar doesn't mean any harm when he breaks in the house. He's just hungry for fellowship. <laughs> and the gangster will throw his gun away if you have a chat with him. Dialogue is the answer to everything. War can be prevented if we have enough summit conferences. They say as long as they're talking, they're not shooting. But if I remember correctly, the shooting started at Pearl Harbor while they were talking in Washington. The big word today, and there are two big words in our study, and one of them is reconciliation. Uh, it's the unpardonable sin to disagree on anything now. Everybody's supposed to be agreeable. Just smile a smile, and as you smile, another smiles, and soon there's miles and miles of smiles, and life's worthwhile if you but smile. Just smile. Now, according to this doctrine, why Elijah should have had a panel discussion with the prophets of Baal, and our Lord should have worked out a program of peaceful coexistence with the Pharisees, and Luther should have had a summit conference with the Pope. These apostles of reconciliation Imagine that communism can be won over by negotiation. But communism is a moral cancer. You do not have peaceful coexistence with cancer. You either get the cancer or the cancer gets you. And there are some things in this world you cannot peacefully coexist with. Some people say we must forgive the communists. They say that Jesus forgave the thief on the cross... He forgave one thief on the cross. Nothing said about the other one. Jesus Christ was and is the great reconciler, but before we consider whom he came to reconcile, we'd better know what he does not reconcile. There are some things that are not negotiable. They're not settled by compromise. They cannot be arbitrated. They're irreconcilable. Righteousness and unrighteousness, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? You can't get them together. The only way that unrighteousness can have fellowship with righteousness is by becoming righteous. Through faith in Christ who became our righteousness, imputed and imparted and implanted when we're born again. And when a sinner becomes a saint by being reconciled to God, then, then indeed you have... Uh, uh, unrighteousness becoming righteousness. And then again, what communion hath light with darkness? You can't get them together. 
This is a day of twilight zones. Black and white have been smudged into an indefinite gray, but right is still right and wrong is still wrong. And the same fountain cannot send forth both bitter water and sweet, and two cannot walk together except to be agreed. The New Testament takes a firm stand against false doctrine in language utterly foreign to the compromisers who would blend everybody into one fellowship, uh, those who doubt or deny the word of God with those who believe it. They tell us today we ought to get all the denominations together in one great big mulligan stew. That that's the answer to all our problems. Well, you've heard me say many times before up here, I know it's not new, that uh, this, uh, this reminds me of hash. I never uh, did eat hash away from home because I didn't know what it was made of, and I didn't eat it at home because I did know what it was made of. And I don't believe in getting everything together in one great big glorified hash. Bible doesn't teach that. There's some things you don't mix up together. There's the church in the world. What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Temple of God and idols, they don't get together. The friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, how are you going to get the world and the church together in the light of those verses? It's a day of amalgamation, a day of togetherness. I don't hear much preaching anymore about evils, certain designated evils. I found a book by a great Baptist preacher of 40 years ago. Found it the other day, dusty in one of the bookshelves on modern evils, and he just came right out and talked about liquor and talked about dancing and talked about smoking and talked about uh, ever so many evils. The theater, my soul, who would ever dare touch that today? When the devil has brought it into the living room, you don't even have to... Go down the street to see Sodom and Gomorrah. It's brought right into your living room, but nobody says anything. It isn't the thing to do now. Preachers don't talk about that anymore. And even some church gentlemen are saying a good word today to the effect that uh, the New Testament does not teach total abstinence. Well, why bring that up? That crowd doesn't need any more encouragement. I think the preachers could occupy their time better than giving encouragement. If, they, if you've had any liquor, you've had too much. But uh, why, why bring that up anyhow? There's a lot of difference between the old age of fermentation and this new age of distillation. And we're facing the liquor business today, and I don't hear much said about it anymore. We're trying to mop up the floor while we leave the faucet running. Nobody says anything much about it. Sam Jones, Mordecai Ham, Billy Sunday, <clears throat> they fought the business and their lives were sometimes endangered by that crowd. But today, the only reason I hear for not drinking is said, well, on account of the weaker brother. Well, that's a good reason, but it's not the main reason. I don't have to have... Uh, that argument to leave it alone, all I need to do is watch the crowd that's drinking it. And then the church and the world, beloved, uh, are amalgamated on so many different issues of this time, about which we're keeping our mouths shut. Even the fundamentalists don't say much about it. 
But my Lord said in Matthew 10, 16, I'm sending you forth not as white sheep among black sheep. I'm sending you forth as sheep among wolves. Now, if you haven't found out by now what kind of a world you're in and up against, that's what it is. It's full of wolves. The Bible's full of vivid imagery drawn from the world of animals. The mule, the dog, the sow, the fox, the sheep and the goats. Evil men are spoken of as wolves and God's people as sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd. There's the 23rd Psalm and John 10 and we're the sheep of his pasture. There are no other animals that I can think of as unlike, as different as wolves and sheep. The wolf is a symbol of everything that's vicious and violent and rapacious and destructive. And the sheep's a figure of all that's gentle and innocent and peaceful and benign. And there's no way on earth to establish peaceful coexistence between wolves and sheep. They're going to lie down in the kingdom age, Isaiah 65, 25, and the sheep won't be on the inside of the wolf either. But that's the only time that'll ever happen. Not going to happen now. And there are those who try to establish liaison and rapport between the world and the church. But God sees only two kinds of people, the once born and the twice born, and the wolves are out to destroy the sheep. This idea that this old world is kindly disposed toward the church is a lot of eyewash. The true shepherd does not invite the wolf into the fold in the hope of establishing communication. He lays down his life for the sheep. It's about time we got wise what we're up against. I like the way Phillips closes that verse in Ephesians. It says we're up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. We are living in a demonic world masterminded by the devil. Now sometimes the wolves wear sheep's clothing, Matthew 7, 15, and they creep into pulpits and would deceive the very elect. Satan does much more harm as an angel of light than he ever does as a roaring lion. Paul warned the church about that in the 20th chapter of Acts. He said in verse uh, uh, 29, I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now that's trouble from the outside. Verse 30 is trouble from the inside. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. The church today is faced by trouble from the outside, wolves from the outside, and trouble on the inside, both directions. I remember back in the days of the First World War that old Theodore Roosevelt, who is just about my favorite president, Theodore Roosevelt had no use for mixed loyalty, German-Americanism. He said, if you are an American and something else, you're not an American. He talked about hyphenated Americans. He said, this country is not a polyglot boarding house. And even Kaiser Bill said, I can understand a German or an American, but I don't know what to think of a German-American. You can't be true to both. We're living today in a world pretty largely run by once-born people, and if we're twice-born people, it's going to be trouble. And either the church or the world, one, one or the other, must lose its distinctive characteristics if we're to have peace. Well, the world's not about to lose its. But we're losing a lot of ours with mistaken motives. 
entirely. And so we need to find out what we're up against. Now, you may have some commerce with the world. Paul said you couldn't get away from it and hide in a hole somewhere like the old mystics did way back in the Middle Ages. They hid in caves, but it doesn't make you any holier to hide in a hole. It takes more than a hole to make you holier. But while we can have some commerce with the world on lower levels, you must remember, beloved, that we are living in a day of constant conspiracy on the part of this world against the people of God, and we have nothing in common spiritually. Now, how are you going to meet the hatred of this world? By being as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. There again, you have a figure from nature. Nobody on earth ought to be as sharp as a Christian. You need all the sense you can get together and all the knowledge you can accumulate. You need to be as keen as possible. You need to be alert. But at the same time, you must be harmless as a dove. What you say must be clothed in love. Somebody said love is a verb, not a noun. 1 Corinthians 13, it's what it is and what it does that identifies love. We need to know what kind of world we're in. Jesus' brother said to him one day, John 7, 7, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and preach and get out of the backwoods and up there on the boulevards. You're not handling your publicity rights. You need an advance agent. You see, Jesus never had much publicity in his time. He would be the despair of any publicity agent today. If he performed a miracle, he said, don't tell it. And so he said to these brothers, you talk that way because you're of the world. The world can't hate you because you're of it. But me it hateth because I testify of it that its works are evil. And they'll hate you too if you testify of it that its works are evil. We're sheep among wolves. Don't you ever forget that... uh, While you may do business with men of this world in a shop or in a store, you may be in the same profession like a doctor or an engineer. You may sit at a concert and enjoy Beethoven, perhaps. You may go on a fishing trip. But when it comes to matters of the soul, you're a sheep among wolves. You're a citizen of another country. You belong to another race. You're a member of another nationality. Sheep among wolves. I heard of a man that had a little old dog that was always getting in a fight and always getting licked. And somebody said, well, not much of a fighter, is he? Oh, yes, he's a good fighter, just a poor judge of dogs. Now, you've got to know what you're up against in this world. Mr. Letourneau used to say that what bothered him was not the wolfishness of the wolves so much as the sheepishness of the sheep. I think that'll do to think over. And in the 17th chapter of John, my Lord told us how Christians are to act with regard to this world. There's the greatest chapter in the whole Bible, I think, on uh, the Christian in this world. John says more about this world than anybody else in the Bible. In the gospel, in the epistles, more about the world. Watchman Nee has a wonderful book on love, not the world. He brings out some ideas as he sat, I guess, in prison with his Bible that a lot of folks hadn't thought about. What what is this old world? 
Well, you get to preaching about worldliness, and folks confine it to three or four certain sins, but it's being taken up with the spirit of this age, and we need to know what we're against. Jesus said four things in John 17, and that's all you need to know. We've been saved out of the world, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we've been saved out of the world to go right back into the world, to win people out of the world, and that's the only business we've got in this world. Now, if you can get straight on that, you're located, friend. And Jesus came down here to reconcile. Well, what did he come to reconcile if he didn't reconcile righteousness and unrighteousness and light and darkness and the church and the world and so on? Well, <clears throat> I like the word reconcile. Even the living Bible couldn't find another word for it. And they generally do. But they couldn't find another word for reconcile because that's the best word in the world for it. And as I've already indicated to you, they're telling us today that young people don't know the meaning of these big, long, double-jointed words, so we need to call it all something else. I think that's perfectly ridiculous. Young people are capable of understanding any of these big words, and certainly by the Holy Spirit, and it's up to God's people to teach them. And this long word, reconciliation, there's another one, propitiation, and they go together. And uh, Isaac Watts, uh, does speak the vernacular of this or any day. And he sets forth before us these tremendous truths out of God's Word. What does reconciliation mean? It means that there was something wrong with us. We're not right with God and we're estranged and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And how in this world can a holy God and a sinful man get together? Man couldn't do it. God did. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And he who was son of God on one hand, who knew no sin, became our sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. His son, our sin. That is reconciliation. But there has to be a moral basis for reconciliation. Somebody says, well, it's repentance. No, no. That's a requirement for reconciliation, so far as our experience of it is concerned. <clears throat> the demands of God's holy law had to be met when a criminal commits a crime. He doesn't get loose by saying he's sorry. And a sinner wouldn't get loose either by just saying, God, I'm sorry, if some arrangement hadn't been made about the penalty. You can't take care of the penalty, but God took care of that in the death of his son. And that's where that other big word, propitiation, comes in. It points us back to the mercy seat in the Old Testament where the uh, judgment seat became a mercy seat by the offering of a lamb without blemish. Now, it wasn't a matter of getting God in good humor. I've heard it preached as though God were mad at us and the only way you could get him in good humor was by Jesus dying in our place. Oh, they wouldn't put it that way, but that's what, it, what they mean. But God did the reconciling, my friend. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, that's the message of reconciliation, calling on people to get right with God, not by any works of your own. The arrangement's already been made. You don't make peace with God. You can't make peace with God. It's been made. Through his son, you accept the arrangement. God is propitiated, and the sinner, when he repents, is reconciled. And so we have a wonderful message to proclaim. 
He came down here that there might be a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. He came down that sinners plunged beneath that flood might lose all their guilt and stain. He came down here that that dying thief might rejoice to see that fountain in his day. He came down here that you and I, though vile as he, to wash all our sins away. And thank God that precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more. I'm an ambassador, therefore, and so are you. You don't have to be a preacher to be an ambassador, saying to all men everywhere, be reconciled to God. Now let me close by setting before you the cross. The Christ of the cross is our great reconciler. But he must be the Christ of the cross. A crossless Christ is just as powerless as a Christless cross. Christ without the cross is just as ineffective as the cross without the Christ. When he hung there, you remember what that crowd said, let him come down from the cross. We'll believe him. That's what the world is saying today. This world doesn't have any fuss with Jesus Christ as a teacher. This world isn't fussing about Jesus Christ as a moral example. They're not fussing with him as an ideal, as an example, as a paragon. Not the paragon, but the propitiation's what they can't stand. They can't stand the blood, and they don't want the cross, and they say, if he'll come down from the cross, we'll take the rest of it. We'll take the teacher. We'll take the leader. We'll take the example. Yes, Jesus was a wonderful man and all that sort of business. But you get around to this old bloody doctrine of the cross, and I say, no, no. That's where the trouble is. That's the offense of the cross. And let me remind you that a cross is vertical and horizontal. If you miss everything else I've said, let me ask you right now this. Our Roman Catholic friends make the sign of the cross. They wear the crucifix. And I find myself, for different reasons, but nonetheless, I find myself sometimes as I stroll along in my meditation, making the sign of the cross for an entirely different reason. The vertical span of the cross represents our relationship with God, up and down. The horizontal our relationship to people. On these hang all the law and the prophets. The two commandments, love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. We need to face the cross again today and ask, is everything all right between me and God? Now, is it? Is there any rebellion in your heart against God? Now, everybody makes mistakes, yes. Nobody perfect, I know that. But is there a point of rebellion in your heart against God this morning? I've been going over that a lot in my own meditation. I believe I can say that although God knows I make mistakes and fall aplenty, I am not conscious of any habitual, willful, determined rebellion against God. We're not having a fuss on any particular point that I know about. And you can get to that place. That's not sinless perfection by a long shot. But you know this morning, does your heart condemn you on this point? If it doesn't, you have confidence toward God. 
Are you aware this morning of a controversy between you and the Almighty? Yes, God, but. And Peter was having a controversy when he saw that vision. Not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. He can't mean both ends of that statement because if he's Lord, you don't say not so. And if you say not so, he's not Lord. Now, there is, is there any point of controversy between you and God? Nothing between my soul and the Savior so that his blessed face is not seen. Sin of omission, sin of commission, sin of disposition. Some doubtful thing. Is there something between you and God? And then how about the other? Is there anything between you and anybody this morning? You say it's his fault. Jesus said, if thy brother sin against thee, uh-oh. That makes it pretty rough, doesn't it? Straighten it out. You bring your gift to the church on Sunday morning, your envelope, and somebody's at odds with you and you've not tried to straighten it out, hang on to your envelope, Jesus said, in effect, till you get right at your brother. That sure would ruin the offering in a lot of churches over America today. You can be a fundamentalist, no old foot notion, a Schofield Bible, premillennial, evangelical, and everything else you can put on the letterheads and still be not right horizontally for somebody. So I think we need to do a little meditating. Lord, how am I doing? How am I doing? Have you been reconciled to your brother? That's hard to do. I know a woman who said she taught a ladies' Bible class for 10 years before she ever got right with God. Went to an old Methodist older and said, Lord, I'll go to India, I'll go to Africa. And the Lord said, I don't want you over there. I want you to get right with Susie. Right here in the church. She said, I hadn't thought about Susie. I started all over. Lord, I'll go to Africa. She said, I'd rather have gone to Africa than get right with Susie. He said, on Sunday, who should come sit down beside me but Susie? And Susie said, I hear you got religion. I said, yeah, I wouldn't be sitting beside you if I didn't have it. And we got right. Now, I wonder if there's something wrong between you and Susie. Well, I know we smile at that. But the church of the living God needs today to face the cross. The vertical and the horizontal. And this is a mighty good place to get straightened out in both directions, toward God and toward man. And when you are, then you are really in the way of the cross. Our Father, we pray that thou shalt by thy Holy Spirit and by the word this morning speak to our hearts about how we stand in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are those here this morning who, who have a controversy with God, there's something between them and thee, Convict. If there are those here this morning who are not right with their fellow man, convict. Get us straight in both directions. To the glory of God and the good of men, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.